0: Thanks for stopping by. I am Josh, a Buddhist pastor, and everything I do is entirely supported by donations. If you'd like to uh, support this work, it's Dharma Punks with an X NYC on Venmo, or the PayPal button is on the website, it says is the Patreon. And uh, so for tonight, I'm going to be doing a talk on uh, one of the foundations of positive psychology and I think one of the goals or destinations that motivate not only spiritual practice, but in many ways our motivation for life itself, in that we seek experiences that relieve us of stress, We yearn for tranquil states where we can feel at one with the world and others, profound experiences that lead to memories that lift our spirits and change our perspectives on life. So the Buddha's teachings offer such a path, of course, if you're familiar with the Eightfold Path, which is his plan for a spiritual life, the Buddha notes that refraining from causing suffering, work that isn't harmful or exceedingly stressful, refraining from addictive compulsions, meditation practice, create a mind that over time can induce what he called the jhanas, extremely peaceful, focused, states that allow for liberation from suffering, awakening into the true nature, the profound paradoxical nature of existence. So, tonight I'm going to be delving into some more of um, contemporary insights into what allows for these peak experiences that are transformative how they occur, what supports them, uh, and why they occur. And to do this, there's no better place to start than with Abraham Maslow, who was a positive psychologist whose uh, work was became uh, prominent in the 1950s and 60s. He was a positive psychologist who in his own words didn't want to treat individuals as a bag of symptoms he didn't like focusing on people's pathologies and or suffer or focusing exclusively exclusively on their sufferings and he focused on the positive qualities that allowed us to be resilient fulfillingly engaged with our lives in other words whereas in most therapeutic traditions, you go in and the therapist would focus on uh, all of the difficulties, the repetitive, harmful ideations would try to change or focus on alleviating stress and suffering, which is, of course, very important. But there would be very little focus on what we're doing right, where we're finding Uh, meaning, happiness, uh, strength, fortitude, and so on. So in 1962, Maslow wrote his deeply influential Toward a Psychology of Being. I think that was the title, Toward a Psychology of Being. And he produced an entire philosophy of how we can have meaningful lives that are capable of peak experiences that are transformative so according to maslow in his work we are motivated to meet a succession of of needs a hierarchy of needs and i'm sure those of you who've taken any psychology in college, or maybe just are familiar with the hierarchy of needs, knows that it's this kind of pyramid, as it's very often depicted. And at the bottom are our most basic survival requirements. And as we move up Maslow's hierarchy, we go to eventually the most refined needs and behaviors that allow us to be deeply Happy and fulfilled in our lives. Maslow noted, though, that to be able to get to really any kind of fulfilling life, we first have to meet the so called foundational or basic needs. We can't just jump up to immediately finding, uh, peak experiences, self-actualization, transcendent life-altering events unless we meet these underlying needs. So for Maslow, the bottom two levels of his uh, hierarchy were we first had to meet the basic physiological requirements um, of food, shelter, clothing, medicine, which the Buddha called the requisites. And the Buddha said too, there's no spiritual advancement without meeting these foundational needs, along with basic safety needs, as in being keeping ourselves out of harm's way, uh, finding resources for emergencies, um, having, again, a shelter that keeps us safe. So that was, these are the very foundational needs. And once we have a sense of these being met, it makes it possible to move up to the next or uh, uh, more meaningful uh, needs, which are love and belonging and a sense of self-esteem. So love and belonging can mean, Romantic relationships, friendships, family, connections, a feeling that we belong in a group or a community. So belonging uh, allows us to have emotion regulation. It moderates our autonomic nervous system. It creates a sense of safety as well as those earlier, more foundational needs. And a sense of self-esteem derives from feeling seen and respected for our contributions to the world and our skills. And this allows us to develop a sense of self-confidence. And those with self-esteem, as we'll see, are more capable of moving towards the ongoing growth that is, for Maslow, the highest uh, state, uh, which is what he called self-actualization. So these supports of getting our basic physiological needs and safety, getting our food, shelter, clothing, being out of harm's way, protected from being assaulted, having some sense of bondedness and affiliation with others and having some uh, sense of positive sense of self, being seen and uh, appreciated by others for our contributions, all of these supports provide the foundation we need for what Maslow called self-actualization, which is the reaching of our full human potential, or at least moving towards meeting our potential, Self-actualization is an ongoing dedication to embracing challenges um, and developing skills that transcend these previous basic core needs. People who are engaged in self-actualization don't just keep doing one set of skills over and over to make more and more money. They, Once they've met the basic foundations of having a place, having some uh, resources, having uh, interpersonal connections, having a sense of esteem for their their work or their livelihood, they don't just stop there. They seek out new skills and new challenges. When I think of somebody who's self-actualized, uh, given uh, who I grew up admiring, David Bowie immediately comes to mind. He was a songwriter, a singer. He was a musician, a gifted mind, and actually an actor who was in many movies. He was an accomplished artist. And he was also a very, very astute businessman who changed the way artists' contracts and artists' uh, legal arrangements were made, and he was uh, always constantly uh, embracing new challenges and pushing himself, as he said, to be uncomfortable. He said, notably, if you ever find yourself too comfortable in life, you're doing something wrong. So, Now, when we hear about this ongoing dedication to embracing challenges, developing new skills, branching out, not staying within just the same uh, work that allows us to make more and more money, uh, but without any sense of turning towards uh, developing growth choices, as Carl Rogers called, it might seem like those are luxury items. But Maslow pointed out that those who ignore self-actualization, who stay within a rut, who don't continually embrace and, uh, and seek out new skills and new experiences, who seek out different uh places and and embrace life they live what he uh claimed to be in many ways unfulfilled unsatisfied kind of idling lives and there's a deficit of motivation for maslow self actualization came with so many attributes that when we look back on our lives, we'd like to claim. So self-actualization, those who continue to grow and embrace life, he noted from all of his work with clients, uh, he found that those who who, uh, continually embrace and grow are particularly resistant to meaningless social traditions and dogmas. They don't give in to peer pressure. They don't follow the kind of hollow doctrines of of obeying uh, authority or patriotism when it's unwarranted. They choose from culture what creates real fulfillment, and they disregard the rest. They're creative and find new ways to express their internal state. So they feel less lonely. They feel more seen by others. They appreciate what others consider to be mundane life experiences with a sense of curiosity and interest. And they aren't motivated by this underlying sense of deficiency. There's something missing or empty, they feel fulfilled, complete, and as they continue to explore, it's not from a need but a want to grow. They enjoy uh, uh, self-actualization. So, if you if you if we hear this, it's clear. It's very clear how important. Um, reaching self-actualization is, is that we all want to be resistant to meaningless social peer pressures. We all want to feel creative and able to express our internal states to others so we can feel known. We all want to be able to engage, even in the mundane day-to-day life, with interest and curiosity. And none of us want to be um, haunted by a sense of lack. So for Maslow, self-actualization, once again, comes from meeting the foundations of safety, requisite needs, love and connection, and self-esteem. And then it's an ongoing embracing and trying out um, new skills. When I was in my uh, 40s, I pushed myself to learn how to skateboard. I taught myself to swim. I'd actually never learned to swim. And I taught myself how to do it. I taught myself how to play the banjo and the accordion. And I just pushed myself because I was familiar with Maslow's work. And I I understood the neural benefits of the more we embrace new challenges and seek out overwhelming or challenging experiences, the more it demands cognitive flexibility. And I'll talk about what that is in a little while. So what's it should be noted that substance abuse, people who are addicts, in many ways, try to invert this whole process. They attempt to self-actualize without meeting the underlying needs of safety and community, and self-esteem. I was just talking with my friend Amy Walker on this subject a couple of days ago, how people who are prone to addiction just always try to jump to the self-actualization point and skip out. They consume substances as a way to try to bypass self-esteem and connection and safety and all that. But what's most important for tonight's talk is that people who are engaged in self-actualization, i.e. embracing life, uh, demanding growth, uh, challenging themselves, uh, trying out new activities, traveling to different places, um, are capable of meaningful peak experiences, which are transcendent states that allow us to step out of our very small frameworks, our very small sense of self as being in these very fragile bodies, disconnected from other people in the world. And peak experiences are states of awe where we are completely positively engaged in an experience. Our perceptions are sharper. We have a harmonious sense of self. We're free of inner conflict, and we're at one with the world. We feel no distance between or no separation from our sense of consciousness and self with these transformative experiences. Now, in many ways, these peak transformative profound experiences are similar to what the uh, famed psychologist Csikszentmihalyi called flow states. Flow states, though, are a little bit different, but they're similar in that they're task-positive states like pottery, gardening, drawing, knitting, playing an instrument, cooking, sorting, uh, that engage a region of the brain called the lateral, the lateral regions, and disengage the ventral medial regions of the brain. So we're not in the, the stressful default mode operation where we're fixated on ourself, we're thinking about uh, our lives in terms of what's missing, or we're worried about the future, or we're obsessing about, past interpersonal events. When we're in a peak experience, uh, a transformative, profound experience, or in a flow state where we're doing something with our hands like pottery, gardening, drawing, knitting, playing an instrument, time passes very quickly. We're at ease. We're focused but we're free of that nagging inner chatter that constantly turns everything into the story about what it means about me and, and compares ourselves to other people. We're free of incessant inner chatter. Our minds are quiet. So peak experiences, the, unlike the flow states, are involve encountering some kind of event or settings that make us, uh, that are monumental, uh, vast natural settings or monumental structures or listening to music or witnessing a great work of art, or even engaging in certain spiritual practices can literally uh, induce this profound peak experience. So what is the peak experience? Let's dive into it a little bit more. Uh, We know already that it's a state where we feel at one with the world around us. We have sharper perceptions, a harmonious sense of self, a a kind of awe. And there's a lot of clinical uh, psychologists like Dasher Keltner and Jonathan Haidt who have written uh, wonderful papers on how awe and peak experiences uh, often involve, for example, nature due to the perception of vastness, immensity and size that makes us, our sense of self-consciousness, feel very small in importance. Elements of religious rituals frequently invoke a sense of smallness. when we're in a maybe a towering cathedral, maybe we're engaged in some kind of uh, ecstatic movements. Uh, maybe we're in, we've traveled to a distant location to practice. I practiced in uh, the jungle of Thailand and uh, in Bali in in this amazing location over the ocean and or or great music and art that is intricate and complex that exceeds all of these these, uh, experiences, whether uh, spiritual or encountering the natural or vast monuments or great music or art, The um, stimuli is so complex that it exceeds our normal ability to make sense of it. And uh, it invokes a kind of emotional uh, wonder. Uh, The complexity, the scope, the surprises of nature and great art, great buildings uh, like the Duomo in Florence or um, Machu Picchu, I've never been there, but I've heard, or spiritual endeavors initiate these kind of heightened emotional states, which means that our Mental schemas and perceptions are unprepared to quickly interpret it and just file it away. You see, over our lifetimes are, there's a, a, a region of the brain, the thalamus, which filters out so much sensory stimuli over time in our lives, we learn just which stimuli just doesn't seem that meaningful. And we filtered out so that we can essentially engage with our thoughts and drop out of awareness in the world around us. And this requires not only gating out or filtering out sensory stimuli, it also requires that we quickly label each experience, in terms of some kind of oh, you know, this is good or bad or uh indifferent, we're constantly when we encounter people, we're walking somewhere, we're uh sitting outside, we filter out and we just kind of label the experience as unimportant. Our striatums, uh create habitual responses to all of the stimuli around us. Again, so that we can get lost in thought. So um, when we encounter sensory rich experiences, they overpower these neural ruts, these customary cognitive frameworks and perceptions so that we can't immediately Frame or file away the experience the first time we encounter a beautiful uh, uh vista when we've gone on a hour hike and then we wind up at this beautiful overlook uh near Tannersville, and we see these eagles diving and soaring and these mountains rising up and the uh <clears throat> just this unlimited sight line we can't interpret that in terms of either or labels, like good or bad, useful or useless. Uh, Words fail us, and we're forced to live with what's called paradox or um, cognitive integration, where we have these experiences that we simply can't immediately label, interpret, and then not pay attention to. The events uh, force us to stay in this ongoing, focused, Im- engaged, immersive attention. And we can't, it doesn't fit any of our previous, uh, cognitive frameworks. It doesn't, it doesn't match what we've experienced before. And this in it, in itself results can result in lasting change because while we're in that state of awe, getting out of those cognitive ruts that we're in and down engaging the autonomic nerve nervous system uh, can result in a profound shift in perspective. You see all inspiring experiences Uh, engage what's called autonomic flexibility. Our parasympathetic activity increases our sympathetic nervous system, which is vigilance and mobilize and threat detection, decreases significantly. We're fully relaxed, free of any stressors, yet we're capable of very ongoing uh, focused attention. And we can put aside in that moment all our previous ideations and perceptions and cognitive labels and new neural connections are being made in a peak experience we engage what's called um neural oh uh neuroplasticity and we literally are synaptically uh evading all of the filters of the thalamus, and we're deeply encoding new emotions, a new openness to life. And all of that uh, chronic uh, stress, self-oriented ideations and filtering is put aside, and there's this uh, profound shift. Now, those who live with chronic stress ongoing hypervigilance, overwhelming um, responsibilities, you know, or constant loneliness don't have the autonomic adaptability to produce the ease necessary for peak experience. Ongoing stress, i.e. cortisol, disrupts and, and literally prohibits neuroplasticity. New synaptic connections just don't form the way they do in brains that have met the foundations or the requisites where safety, connections, self-esteem has been developed. So as the Buddha and Maslow suggested, there's no shortcuts to a peak experience. Meaningful changes require we set the foundations that support, or the conditions, as the Buddha called them, that support a peak experience. Put this another way, we can travel to a vast, inspiring location, we could go to Burning Man, we could dance for hours to trance music, we could consume in a clinical or non-clinical setting all kinds of substances like ketamine, MDMA, shrooms, ayahuasca, but without the foundations the the Buddha and Maslow noted, the interpersonal connections, the sense of self-worth from taking positive pro-tribal actions, from having a nervous system that has uh, experienced enough safety and has the requisites that support physiological well-being, we simply won't have a nervous system nor frontal lobes capable of transformative experiences. I'd like to delve really much deeper into this, but uh, the framework of our talks doesn't allow for it, but I would encourage people who are interested. There's online the John Templeton Foundation, which has archives on the cognitive science of awe. And there's people like Dasher Keltner and Jonathan Haidt, who wrote one of the most foundational uh, uh, papers in 2003, but there's also newer, uh, there's a lot of new uh, science on it Awe and the Diminished Self and Collective Engagement by Laura Marishkin, who points out that when we're in awe, we move from me thinking to we connectivity. Uh, Van Elk and Gomez, who wrote the neural cognitive correlates, I think, of, of peak experiences. Um, and showed how awe demands uh, shutting off default mode network activity. The good news is that those, even though we won't be able to have lasting, meaningful peak experiences without uh, these foundational supports, scientists at UK, UC Berkeley Uh, noted that if we practice conjuring transitory senses of awe, even as short as 15 seconds for three times a day, in as little as a month, there'll be a a, a, a reduction in stress, anxiety, the symptoms of loneliness. So simply preparing the mind for... Peak experiences allows, of course, peak experiences and transformative events to happen. And there's no better way to do this than meditation. Meditation is a systematic attempt to use the, the left singular to override both the ongoing engagement of you know self oriented ideations it's where we practice focusing attention on experiences and in that focused attention finding what is novel and new and unexpected looking for the details even in the most mundane experiences like breathing or sounds or body sensations. And it also downregulates the nervous system so that we can prepare ourselves for life-changing events. So given that's the case, I'm going to lead us now on a meditation that will both, one, hopefully downregulate or um, induce homeostasis, but also will engage what the scientists at UC Berkeley called conjuring transitory states of awe. So with that, let's
1: find a really comfortable seated position and uh, please uh, if you feel
0: um, so inclined look away from the screen don't when you're in this practice you'll completely uh, undermine it if you're looking at a screen. Um, Interestingly, in peak uh, and flow states, there's this ongoing release of dopamine that keeps us engaged, but it's not the kind of highs and lows of dopamine secretion that can come from, you know, uh, sort of ever-shifting state of attention and looking at screens. So, we want to close our eyes. And if you don't want to do that, you can just rest your eyes on something that's very stable in your environment, in your surroundings. Something, as we say, natural natural images, a little bit of nature, even an image or photograph,
1: or something like a plant. Hmm. The complexity of nature
0: is perfect for both relaxing the nervous system and also, as
1: we've seen, conducive eventually towards peak experiences. So we're going to try to bring our attention into our bodies. And
0: to do this, just find the internal sensation, whether it's Uh, a contact with their chair or the breathing that expands and contracts your chest, or maybe it's an ambient
1: sensation in the body, something that is ongoing and just rest your attention on it. Hopefully it won't be a sensation associated with uh, discomfort, as that will produce
0: a state of attention that is anything but relaxed. If... The sensations in your body are essentially uncomfortable or just neutral. You can't find
1: a pleasant, soothing sensation, not in the breath,
0: not behind your eyelids, not in the palms of your hands, but your body feels pretty bereft of easeful,
1: Stimuli, then just listen to the sounds arriving. Just take in the ongoing transitory flow of sounds, auditory stimuli. And just resting in this
0: moment. So while you rest on some sensation, also make sure that you release any tension in the jaw. That you roll back and drop
1: your shoulders away from the ears. And that you... Make sure that you can release the belly, make
0: it soft. For those of you who feel your abdomens, the muscles in your abdomens are perpetually taut, just slowly breathe in and expand your belly.
1: And then just see if you can release it there. releasing any tightness in the buttocks, in the thighs, So, just see if you can land and stay on one ongoing flow of sensations, whether it's
0: sounds from around you or following the breath up from the belly to the chest on the inhalation and then the release of the. the chest and the belly and the exhalation
1: or just in the belly or the the chest or maybe just taking in the entirety of the constellation of sensations we're aware of
0: originating in the body, rather than thinking of sensations associated with our toes or hands
1: or legs, just imagining that these sensations are events in a vast night sky flickering lights. Instead of being visible, they're felt. And
0: just as stars flicker, so too the sensations of different areas of the body become perceptible and then fade away. Sometimes I can feel the palms of my hands, other times those sensations fade.
1: Then a sensation that might be from a kneecap or an area of the back, and then those sensations recede, and then other sensations. And just try to relax into this kind of
0: observance. We're setting the foundation of ease and awareness that allows for
1: a transformative experience. So what we're going to do is just sit here for a while, bringing our attention back again and again, to the rich inner landscape or night sky of sensations
0: and sounds arriving from the world around us. And just try to relax into it by continually releasing any tension in the body, breathing in fully, but exhaling very slow long, elongated out-breaths. Every time your mind drifts away back to some
1: thought about the past or the future, just bring it back. Again, this is
0: the foundation for all of the profound
1: positive life-changing events we look forward to. So at this point, I'd like to move on to a practice, very, very
0: early Buddhist practice, a Tamiyata, that is specifically geared to the kind of uh, overwhelming states of or profound states of consciousness associated with peak experiences. There are quite a number of early Buddhist practices that would work. But for this, I'd like you just to start with holding in
1: awareness the sensation of your body breathing in and out. And this could mean finding a specific point,
0: perhaps in the tip of the nose or the belly or the chest, that's constantly providing sensations
1: that are associated with inhalation and exhalation. And once you've found the breathing, I'd like you to keep it in mind while adding into your awareness also a sense of the feelings arising and passing, feelings of comfort, discomfort, or no response to each moment. Very often when
0: The sensations of comfort involve muscles relaxing,
1: the body easing, the breath slowing, the exhalations lengthening. Sensations of increased alertness are associated with the breath moving
0: faster, a focus on the inhalation tightening of muscles in the shoulders and arms. So just become aware while you know whether you're breathing in or out in every moment. Also be aware of the somatic signs in your body of whether you're relaxed and comfortable or you're
1: uncomfortable or you're somewhere in between. So we're now holding two separate concerns, breathing and states of feeling
0: in mind. Breathing might be just awareness of the chest, but knowing how we're feeling involves
1: monitoring shifts in muscle tension, length of breath, Maybe a change on the expression of our face. And while we're holding sensations of the
0: breath and shifting somatic markers in the body associated with comfort and discomfort, we're now going to add in awareness. Of what mood we're in.
1: Is the mind expansive and bright? Or is the man, mind very narrow?
0: Does the world and sensations feel very close or far away?
1: Does the mind feel bright or kind of overcast or dim? Do we feel a lot of jumpiness in our attention, or can our attention relax? So now we're aware of, am I breathing in or out in this moment? Is my body
0: moving towards comfort or discomfort or not shifting
1: at all? Is my mind bright, open, settled or jumpy, unfocused, far away, keeping all these different concerns, and then bring in awareness of, again, the sounds that surround us and sensations of hot or cold arriving from the environment we're in. We're bypassing all of the stuff we normally filter out and we're bringing them all in, all these sensations that are going on. And we're returning to the overwhelming, immersive experience
0: of being alive. Right now, am
1: I breathing in or out? Is my body comfortable or uncomfortable? what mood am I in? What quality of attention? What sounds are happening in my environment And, as you take in this vast state? Over rich stimuli, see if you can just relax, settle the feelings. You're now in the most relaxing seat, taking in the richness of being alive. And just see if you can. Maximize all the sensations that your consciousness can hold in any given moment. Fill it up. breathing comfortably while immersed, and each moment truly marveling that
0: this moment, these sensations, will never repeat in the same way.
1: How is each moment different from the one preceding it, the quality of the breath, the feelings in the body, the mood, a settledness or a quality of attention, the sounds. Become so overwhelmed with stimuli that you can no longer file it, make sense of it, interpret it. You're just being with it. you now releasing all of the sensations
0: except for the breath, returning just to
1: knowing whether we're breathing in or out by one sensation in the body. And whenever we're ready, slowly opening her eyes.